Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome, Isham Nation, to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 19. It's great to be here with you great to have the opportunity to talk with you again. So thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting Isham Education. Today we're starting off the show with what's on my mind, followed by the segment Mailbox Mania, where we're taking a look at the process publication by Isham. And then last, I have the pleasure of speaking with our featured guest, Tanya Lewis, who is Isham's current president-elect and will be the 2021-22 Isham president. And now it's time for What's On My Mind. This week in What's On My Mind, I'm going to talk about vendor reps. Now, I know there can be a negative image when it comes to vendor representatives. That negative image is usually centered around loaner instrumentation instrumentation arriving late to the sterile processing department, which really forces those departments to rush and sterilize instrumentation or put the department in the position of suggesting that that scheduled case be delayed or even canceled. Now, I would agree that instrumentation showing up late can be a real struggle and in some cases a nightmare really to deal with. In those situations, I would really suggest visiting Uh, your loaner policy, and making sure it aligns with your current processes, and then look to see what information is out there, what information has been published. For example, uh, there is an ISHM position paper on management of loaner instrumentation. Now, that that loaner instrumentation program should include uh, requesting loaner instruments or implants, time requirements for pre-procedure and post-procedure processing and in-servicing as needed, acquisition of loader items, including detailed inventory list, preferably with pictures, obtaining FDA-cleared manufacturers' written instructions for use, and care, cleaning, assembly, and sterilization, cleaning and decontamination and sterilizing borrowed instruments received by the facility, transporting processed loaner instruments to the point of use, post-procedure documentation, processing and inventory, returning to the representative, and then maintaining records of transactions. There's also a good checklist in that ISHM position paper that identifies uh, some of the following. Uh, sterile processing notified of loaners prior to receiving them. Loaners received in the facility or decontamination at least two working days, 48 hours, for existing sets, and then three working days, 72 hours for new sets before scheduled cases. Inventory list provided available. FDA cleared IFUs. Inventory and quality checks completed. Multiple trays numbered and labeled. Trays don't exceed the 25 pounds. All instruments are in good condition with no rusting or pitting. 
Containers are in good condition with no rusting, tape, or residue. All these things associated with loaner trays. But what I really want to focus on today is when things go right, right? So when I managed a facility, I worked with an ortho rep who got it, who really understood that good communication between the surgeon and sterile processing was vital to successful surgery. Now he worked with one of our ortho surgeons and that surgeon specialized in knee and hip replacements. When this rep first started working with us, one of the first things he did was to introduce himself and simply ask what would be the ideal process for processing his instruments. So he didn't just show up one day, drop off 40 sets and say, I need these for such and such day or such and such procedure. And then the day of the surgery show up and say, where's my instruments? Unfortunately, I know this happens all too frequently, but this rep understood that working together would be more beneficial for everyone involved. So together, we made a plan, uh, one to reduce the number of trays by eliminating uh, the instruments that the surgeon didn't need. Now this had several benefits uh, for sterile processing. First, the amount of instruments that needed to be cleaned and the decontamination was reduced and the same for assembly when processing those instruments. So we went from 10 trays to two trays per case, which is significant, especially when the surgeon usually performed about six cases when he was there. Now we're talking about a 40 tray reduction, which frees up tons of processing man hours. And then second, with the fewer trays, there were less opportunities for lost instrumentation. Now, one of my biggest pet peeves was always replacing lost vendor instrumentation, which in most cases, you know, it wasn't even used on the patient or any patient for that matter. You know, it's, it's one of those obscure instruments that no one ever used. So then the rep would make it a point after each set was cleaned to come to sterile processing and reset the instrument tray. Now it was kind of like a redundant check for each set. He would reset the tray and then the technicians would check the rep's work using the computer tracking system, assemble the tray, and then both of course the rep and the technician would, would be checking for bio burden and functionality. So through this collaboration, you know, rarely was there an issue with those ortho sets. So here's just a good example of how good communication can help both the sterile processing and the vendor accomplish a common goal, the goal of successful patient outcomes. And so with that, that's going to do it for what's on my mind. This week in Mailbox Mania, we're looking at the May-June 2020 Isham Publication of Process. The first article is in the CER lesson plan titled, Workflow and Logistics in Flexible Endoscope Processing Areas. The learning objectives for this article Define what proper workflow entails for endoscope processing areas to prevent cross-contamination of flexible endoscopes. 
review published recommendations and requirements on the workflow and cross-contamination reduction strategies from standards and professional society recommendations, and then last, outline currently available methods for preventing cross-contamination in processing areas and identify how these methods can be implemented in the healthcare facility. Now the article reads, an important cross-contamination prevention strategy is the proper workflow and design of the endoscope processing area. Workflow in the area should be unidirectional from the decontamination area to the clean area and then to the storage area. Workflow patterns should be designed to contain contaminants and prevent damage to endoscopes, all while minimizing employee exposure to pathogens and chemicals. Flexible endoscopes should be processed in an area controlled and maintained to support processing activities. Guidelines recommend that processing of flexible endoscopes should occur in areas where temperature, humidity, environmental cleaning, surgical attire, traffic patterns, and security are managed in accordance with specific policies and procedures that promote processing activities. Doing so may improve efficiency, maintain functionality of flexible endoscopes and other medical devices, help reduce the risk of cross-contamination, and provide a safe work environment. The article then gives some considerations for the initial design of endoscope processing areas. And those are, can work surfaces withstand frequent cleaning and disinfection? Is there proper unidirectional flow from dirty to clean? Can the area handle the patient volume, so current and anticipated? What number and type of endoscopes and equipment will be used in the area? What quantity and types of processing equipment, automated endoscope reprocessors, ultrasonic cleaners are needed? And then which type of endoscopes and equipment storage requirements are there? Where will supplies and chemicals be stored? Is the area large enough to handle the number of people anticipated to be working in the area? Is there a correct traffic flow and restricted access? Are there proper required utilities available to support processing activities? Is the area designed with proper ergonomics and human factors in mind? Is there a clean area for visual inspection and performing cleaning verification tests? And then is there an area for employees to take breaks as food and drinks are not permitted in the endoscope processing area. So good article folks, especially if you're in the process of centralizing endoscopes or uh, like I've said in the past, you are taking on more responsibility uh, with endoscopes. So the next article uh, we're gonna look at is using social media content for professional education, benefits and cautions. So the learning objectives uh, identify social media applications used by a growing number of healthcare professionals. Explain the role of social media in healthcare facility education. And then last, identify how social media content can be used most safely and prudently for employee education. 
So for many staff members, their smartphone control much of their lives. It can manage their schedule, allow them to communicate with friends, family, and coworkers, and deliver updates on events happening around the world. Now, many employers consider smartphones distractions that can contribute to poor employee performance, and in the realm of the healthcare, they can also contribute to the health and safety risk due to the issue of cross-contamination and subsequent patient infection. In fact, many facilities ban the use of phones while they're on the clock. Now, some healthcare standards and guidelines recommend personal phones not be used during one's shift in sterile processing areas. Although assessing social media and other online content can jeopardize safety and priority when used in the workplace at inopportune moments, its judicious use can also garner benefits which include when used for employee education. Educational programs available through social media may close facility educational gaps. Utilizing introductory courses and videos created by vendors and other healthcare facilities or professional groups. Internal education should be focused on facility-specific needs. Social media can connect sterile processing departments across a multi-facility healthcare group. So to find out how you can use social media to enhance your department's educational needs, pick up this issue and read this article. Now the next article we're going to read is Environmental Responsibility, Keeping Sterile Processing Departments Clean and Functional. The learning objectives for this article discuss the importance of routine environmental cleaning and disinfection of sterile processing departments. Discuss the responsibilities of the environmental interdisciplinary team. And then last, list critical equipment and surfaces in sterile processing that require routine care and maintenance. Often a sterile processing department is so busy processing medical devices that some of the environmental cleaning and routine maintenance tasks are often left undone. The environment in which the medical devices are processed is very important. For example, if processing areas that have dust and lint contamination, those particles can be deposited into instrumentation. Now this lesson addresses the importance of environmental cleaning and the guidelines and regulations that guide those processes. The article goes on to discuss different areas that should be considered for routine cleaning and disinfection along with some recommendations for sterile processing equipment. So a good article, you know, we need to not only make sure we clean our instruments so they're safe for patients, but we need to clean our work areas, right? So we're not recontaminating the hard work we've already put into our instrumentation. And then the last article we're going to look at is titled, The Science of Speed, Today's Rapid Readout Bios. Now the objectives or the learning objectives describe the design and function of biological indicators, understand how rapid readout biological indicator systems work, and then discuss the recommended uses of biological indicators for sterilization monitoring. The article reads, Biological indicators, BIs, are an important part of a quality control system for hospital sterile processing departments. Information about the quality of the sterilization process supplied by the BIs 
when combined with the information from physical monitoring and chemical indicators, provide the basis for the decision on whether to release the medical devices for patients. BI technology has continued to evolve with faster detection of the biological signals produced by the bacterial spores that provide the direct challenge to the sterilization process. These technologies have resulted in BIs with incubation times of less than 30 minutes for some sterilization processes. These brief intubation times now make it possible to obtain biological test results in time for optimized instrument workflow, including shorter quarantine periods for implantable devices and admitting facilities for all instruments. These indicators facilitate improved quality control of sterile processing processes by enabling increased frequency of biological monitoring. So great information for biological testing. I suggest you learn more about the biologicals and that is going to do it for this segment of Mailbox Mania. So our guest speaker today is Tanya Lewis. Now Tanya is Isham's president-elect and has also served Isham for many years in her chapter and as secretary and treasurer on the Isham board of directors. She also serves as sterile processing supervisor for Wellstar North Fulton Hospital in Roswell, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Well, thank you, Tanya, for joining us on the Process This podcast. So let's get into a few questions. First, tell us about yourself. Uh, For example, where do you work and what do you like to do in your free time? Okay, so um, I am sterile processing supervisor at Wellstar North Fulton Hospital in in, uh, Roswell, Georgia. I have been in this position here at this facility for since 2011. I can't count, but since (laughs) 2011. And then um, previously, I was at a hospital in uh, Chattanooga, an HCA hospital, where I was a sterile processing manager. And before then, I was a scrub tech for about 15 years. And my free time, I have lots of free time. I, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a, a homebody. I am a homebody. And um, I just like to piddle around the house. And right now, at this time, I'm going to piddle around the house because I'm not going out anywhere. Sure. But I'm a piddler, and I like watching great movies on Netflix and um, things of that sort. But I'm just a person who, I'm a, I'm a homebound person, homebody. Right. How did you get into the field of sterile processing? Well, like I said previously, um, I worked at a hospital in Chattanooga, and, uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was a scrub tech. And uh, working as a scrub tech at that facility, I had a really good rapport with the people in sterile processing. Uh, did I know a lot about sterile processing? No, I didn't. I knew about sterile instruments. So um, my friend that was the manager of sterile processing, he uh, he left. And my uh, OR manager said, I just think you would be a great fit for the people in sterile processing. And I'm like, oh, okay. But I took on the challenge because I really wanted to get away from scrubbing. I was I was done and over with it. So uh, I took on that challenge. And, and so I went to sterile processing to be their manager, and they taught me a lot. 
And that's how I got into the field of sterile processing. Great. So what made you decide to get into leadership? Somebody said you would be a good fit. No. <laughs> well, really, it really is. That is the truth. Someone said, not someone, my uh, OR manager said, you'd be a good fit in a leadership role. And I'm like, and I think she meant it was because I was a little bossy. <laughs> but I took on her challenge, and, and so that's when I ended up in sterile processing. What do you like most about working in sterile processing? I really like the fact that we do such a tremendous job for our patients. I mean, I'm, I'm patient-oriented from from being a scrub tech, and it just gives me uh, joy to know that, you know, that we're doing what we need to do to keep our patients safe, and I really enjoy the fact that that's what we do. So we're going to switch some gears here. Uh, how long have you served Isham on the executive board? Whoa, I started, to be honest with you, John, I have to go back in my mind because <laughs> I guess this is 2020. I can't remember. I know I was on the board. I was um, on the board when they chose uh, when we had to be chapter rep. So I'm dating myself. Um, <laughs> Only be a chapter rep to get on the board. Oh, okay. So, oh, I'm going to say a minimum of um, 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Because I started as, you know, an executive board member of uh, that for two or three years. And then I ended up being the uh, secretary treasurer this past uh, for two years. And, and now, as you know, I'm in the uh, president-elect role. So. It's been close to 10 years. As an executive board member, what type of things do you do throughout the year? Well, this year, with the exception of this year, (laughs) you know, we actually have to really um, get together in person at least two, maybe three times out of the year because we can work as a group via the telephone, virtual, however, but you really have to just sit down and, and, and come together with things that need to be dealt with in person. So we do try to at least meet two to three times out of the year uh, in person to, to go over things, policies, procedures, uh, strategic plans, and things of that sort. And so those are some of the things that we really need to be face-to-face. When did you decide that you wanted to run for Isham president? I'm not really sure when I decided. I, I think uh, some of my fellow uh, members kept saying, you should run, you should run. And I'm like, should I? And the more I thought about it, really, the more I thought about it and I thought, you know, I think that I have a lot to offer from my experience as in this industry to try to uh, help our members and uh, anybody else that needs help. Not only our members, you know, but... Uh, people that need help in the sterile processing realm. So it just made me think, the more I thought about it and the, and the more I prayed about it, I thought, well, I think I would be a good fit to help uh, take Isham into the future. Yeah, and we always need presidents who are out there in the field 
and who really have that concern about the members. So it's great, and it's great to have you as the president-elect. Thank you. What excites you most about serving as Isham president-elect? Well, just to be able to serve the, serve the uh, members and, uh, and hope to give some insight into, you know, uh, some like our newer members and, and uh, the people who are coming into this uh, profession. Just to be able to, I'm excited about people. I am excited about people. I'm excited about learning, and I'm excited about people learning. So that being said, this is an association that, that really um, educates and, and helps their, their members, you know, move forward and progress. And so I'm really excited about that. What advice would you give to anyone who aspires to be on the Isham Education Board of Directors or even one day president? I would say to them, you have to be involved. You have to be engaged in the organization. You know, you, you, if you sit on the sideline and, and you're not engaged in, in this association, you're missing out on a lot. People don't realize that there's a lot that we need to know, you know, as far as the industry and the industry standards and, you know, trying to get our state's uh, mandatory certification. So I think that's just something that we should be proud of, that the issue is actually moving forward in that direction as far as education. And really, I'm really proud of the part where we are really moving forward, um, trying to get our states to uh, mandatory certification. The Isham Annual Conference is one of Isham's biggest events. And, you know, because of the COVID virus this year, the conference was canceled. What do you miss most about not being able to attend the conference? You know, it's the people. <laughs> it is the people. It, it's great to see everybody every year, you know, and then you meet new people and uh, old friends, and then you come with new friends. It's the people, but also, that's the first thing. But also, it's the educational opportunity mm-hmm. that uh, you get going to the conferences and to sit and listen and, and the vendor shows and all that. It's just really an exciting time. And I really, I'm really excited when it's close to the time or when it's almost time. And being this year, it was such a bummer. But, you know, it's, yeah. it's for the best for all of us. But it's the people and it's the, it's the information that you receive and the networking. All right. So last question. What excites you most about the next three years as you serve as president-elect, president, and then past president? That's three years, John. Three years. <laughs> well, just, I'm just funny, but um, I am excited. Um, we have things in place. We have policies in place. We're moving forward and strategically. We're coming together with a strategic plan because our is we got to move forward on that. I'm excited to be in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to be a part of it. And I'm more excited to uh, be able to serve our members. Our members are a group of people that are really dedicated, I believe, in the profession and in what they're doing. And I'm just excited to serve them. I've, I've met so many people over the years going to the conferences. And I just think it's going to be an exciting time. For, for us all, minus this year, because of the, because of the COVID. But other than that, I'm, I'm excited about serving the people at Isham. I really am.
And if there's anything that anybody needs from me, uh, I'll be more than happy to help them if I can. You know, thank you, Tanya, for taking the time to speak to our Isham Nation. And, you know, we just congratulate you on your presidency, and we look forward to the next three years, and we're glad you're here with us. So thank you very much, Tanya. All right. Thank you, John. Tanya, thanks again for speaking with us today. It's always a pleasure. Isham Nation, episode 19 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the episode. Don't forget your CE. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code Loner Instruments. The code for this episode is Loner Instruments. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode is on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.